What up? This is Drex One. Welcome to another episode of the History of the Bay podcast. Behind the cameras today, we got King Set MVP Productions. We got Rocky Vision. We got the producer, my man Skino in the cut. We got D.O. behind the boards. And shout out to our sponsors of Amoeba Music San Francisco, as well as the folks at Dying Breed, where you can get original merchandise as well as all your graffiti supplies. But check this out. Today, we have a very special guest, someone I've known for quite a while. She is an educator. She is an organizer. She is a journalist. She is a mother, a wife, and a dope rapper representing San Francisco. We got my folks, Miss Rocky Rivera. Hey, what up, y'all? So happy to be here. Thank you very much for coming through and making time. I know you're very busy. My pleasure. Always for the city. Always for y'all. Off top. And uh, I know you have an interesting story and you've made some interesting contributions to this Bay Area scene. So I want to go ahead and get into that. Starting with what was it like for you growing up in San Francisco? Something that not a lot of people can talk about because a lot of people claim it, but they never really lived it. So just want to say that right there. Living in the city... You know, when we lived, when we grew up in the city, when I grew up in the city, which is um, late 80s, um, all of the 90s, I feel like it was like a golden age for working class black and brown kids because maybe it was a Reaganomics, maybe it was that we were doing so well at the time, but it felt like even if you were poor and broke, you still had a beautiful view of the city. You still had your smoke spot. You still had, you still could watch our sports teams play. You could still afford to go to concerts. We could afford to do whatever we wanted. And the city was our playground. And growing up in the city for me meant meeting up with my my best friend downtown and kicking it with all the Manongs at McDonald's and then going shopping and then going to the Metreon, going ice skating, doing things mm. that involve living in a huge city as a young person and learning how to navigate that Um Everything, the homelessness, um, everything that we experience right now, I experienced that growing up. So it ain't nothing new. It's just that after the pandemic, we just started to really notice who wasn't here anymore. Mm. So back in the day, we were all out. Like the kids was out. There was a lot more kids on the bus. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of us taking the bus from my middle school, Petrojo Middle School, all the way to like Kizar, where... Everybody had a story about getting kicked off the bus, a muni bus. Remember when them windows used to open like mm-hmm. this? Make and, your escape. And yeah, yeah. If you had to make a quick escape, you <laughs> knew how to do it. So it was a lot of like school of hard knocks. Um, but as I got older, I realized that um, I was really spoiled growing up in a city like San Francisco. It was the most, one of the most beautiful cities in the world with the most beautiful people, with the best weed, mm. which I later enjoyed when I was a little older. Um, but also the music and the culture for me is what really made me proud of growing up in San Francisco. That was a very authentic answer right there. Very <laughs> relatable. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and let's just put it on the record. What neighborhood did you grow up in primarily? Well, I'm a military kid. So when they used to call out all the hoods during the basketball games, they'd be like, Lakeview, Hunters Point, T.I. So they used to call us the T.I. kids because we were all the military kids that got bussed into the inner city schools. Um, so I grew up on Treasure Island for the majority of my childhood when it was still a naval base. So it was such, such a weird upbringing because it was in the city, but it was not in the city. I went to school in the city, 
but I went to a military base where you had to show your ID so it was safe. But at the same time, it was from what my cousin described, it was like growing up in an idealistic socialist society where everything where rent was paid for, water, electricity was paid for. We were all on the same accord. And then once that base shut down, I was um, brought into the Excelsior and that became my neighborhood uh, until this day because I went to Balboa High School and um, I really um, loved the Excelsior because it was the one neighborhood in San Francisco that had the greatest concentration of Filipino Americans outside of Daly City. And I'm a very proud San Franciscan Pinai from the city, not from Daly City. So I was really excited to show the working class Filipinos that, yeah, I am proud. No, I did not move out to any of these burbs. Um, yeah, we did stay. We held it down. And so the Excelsior, to me, it became my home because um, once I left Treasure Island, um, that was the community that I grew up in and I went to school and I graduated from Balboa. And as a real Frisco kid, I went to three different high schools in four years. So we always looking for the place that we're going to find home. And some people stay in one neighborhood for the rest of their lives. But the reality is, is a lot of us city kids moved around. And so Excelsior became my home. My last spot where I, I lived in the city was off of Brazil and Madrid. And I had just graduated SF State and it was like a roommate situation. Mm. And I would just go to sleep looking out the, well, I would look out the window at all the sideshows and just be like, oh, I love this neighborhood. It's, <laughs> it's my home. So I do miss Excelsior. If I had an opportunity to buy a house there, I absolutely would jump at that for sure. Yeah, I believe that's the most diverse neighborhood in the city. Left, probably. Yeah, yeah <laughs> that's especially really now. Sad. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so I would love to go back, but you know, I'm a TI kid at heart. I'm a Navy brat. I'm a military brat, but Excelsior in the city um, is really where I, um, you know, put my feet down on that real soil. What was your first uh, experience with hip hop and, and what drew you into to that culture? Hip hop? Well, I always talk about how for us immigrant kids, you know, I came here when I was four years old. My sisters were a little bit older. It was hard for them to transition. So a lot of them ended up uh, dropping out and not being in school. And so as the youngest of three girls, um, I had to really learn to acculture myself to American um, society. And one of the things that helped after I lost my language and my first language was um, the culture of hip hop you know, in black culture. And for me, I didn't really understand that it was black culture at first. I just thought, oh, these people listen to this music. We listen to this music. Yeah. And growing up within hip hop, like basically I, I like to say that, um, you know, me and hip hop came to the West Coast at the same time. <laughs> and so by the time I got to San Francisco, I was doing dance routines, the salt and pepper. I was in all of the talent shows, dancing. I started as a dancer with my sisters. Filipinos love to show their kids off, you know, especially at family parties. That's how you make your money. Mm -hmm. And so I started off as a dancer and that kind of became my entry point into listening to hip hop. And um, when you talk to a lot of OG rappers from back in the day, particularly my friend Jack, 
uh, rest in peace. He always talks about how he used to be a break dancer. First. Yeah, a lot of people have that story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm trying to picture him and I'm like, but you know what though? That's, you know, we all have tried out a lot of different things because I know you do graffiti as well. Yeah. So uh, my first entry point was definitely like the Filipino dance troupe from the 90s where you get to perform at the talent shows. And I'm going to find that footage somewhere. <laughs> I'm going to save it and I'm going to show it to y'all one day. But that's definitely what got me introduced into hip hop was dancing at them talent shows. That's dope. Yeah, I mean, the dancing, it, like the breaking and everything, it looked real fly back then. The, oh, yeah. The, the outfits and, you know, I never got into breaking, but I, I used to love like Crush Groove and all those old school movies and the, the that type of style definitely was attractive to me. Well, what was attractive to me was that the gangsters were break dancers too. So like, I was attracted to the bad boy that dropped out of school because all he wanted to do was break dance and bang all day. So oh, that, <laughs> so that, that was thug, trouble already. Yes, that thug love. Yes, that thug love. <laughs> and exactly. I was like, okay, I can get down. But that just shows you that back in the day, it wasn't just B-boys, like how B-boys are now. Like, yeah, yeah. Everybody was participating in it. Um, but um, I stopped dancing after like middle school, high school. And I was like, you know what? I, I, I'm going to find a way to stay in this. But dancing and doing the Russian kick and doing all these flips <laughs> ain't where it's at right now. Right, I'm getting right. too old for that. So you you have a real like, I would say, unique um, like social political perspective. Would you say you were radicalized at some point? Is that an accurate term? Radicalized. I think I was politicized. Politicized, yes, because yeah. this is okay. a pretty radical city already. Yeah, so it's almost like growing into my San Francisco. I, I, I would say I'm a radical. If you really sat down and asked me about some of my political beliefs, I won't even say them on camera because you know what I'm saying. <laughs> but yeah, um, yeah. What what like was there any like turning point or anything that got you in, more invested into the community and, and this type of perspective on the world? Well, there's two. I'm probably thinking of two situations that politicized me. Um, the first one was joining Law Academy at Balboa High School. Hmm. Uh, Law Academy specifically because we were going over actual Supreme Court rulings yeah. that uh, dictated our destiny, like uh, Brown versus Board of Education, Roe versus Wade. Um, just learning about those simple court cases, to me, kind of, Put everything in perspective. And I didn't understand it back then, but I was like, this might be useful to me one day. And then um, we ended up becoming part of KQED's Making the Grade documentary where we shadowed some folks from Marin Academy and they shadowed us at Balboa. And then that was like eye-opening because for, for, for the both of us because wow. we were like, oh, y'all got it like this? Y'all got a Wait, computer? This is a, a KQED documentary? I Is can send uh, yes, yeah, I, I can send you that. the link. It's called Making the Grade. Wow. And um it follows two of my classmates, one from Babel and one from Marin Academy, and they're both applying to UC Berkeley. Wow. And um those two classes, they joined together so that we could shadow each other and to see the disparities between um two public high schools. Yeah. But one was in Marin County and one was in San Francisco. So that's that crazy. Yeah. So that set me off. Plus it gave me my first TV spot. So I was gonna say, <laughs> yeah, the TV thing started early. If it did it also kind of set a spark with seeing the cameras yeah. and the whole process of how that stuff works. Yeah, because it's funny because me and my boy, 
when they came, when the cameras came into our classroom, and mind you, they're not the cute small cameras we have now. They're like the big old yeah. ones that they still had to point in your face. So we had to try to act cool and try to come up with the most witty things so that we can get that camera time. But um, there's a clip of me that I actually played um, at my last KQED show. Um, of me at 16 years old that my son got to see. And he was like showing all of his friends. And they're like, oh my God, that's your mom at 16. That's crazy. That's the truth. And it was like a full circle moment. But that that in particular um, kind of politicized me to the educational struggles between private and public schools. But it was when I got to college and started going to SF State and um, taking ethnic studies that really gave me that background and history to really understand where those feelings were coming from of inequity, of um, racial discrimination, and of gender discrimination. And then when 9-11 happened, that was what it set it off, basically, because I was confused. You know, I was a military kid, and it looked, it was an attack on our soil, you know. And for my dad, my dad was out there at Desert Storm. You know, he served the country. And at first, I was like, oh, no, we finna bomb him back. No, fuck that. Everybody was high. Like, everybody was high tension, high. Um, there was a lot of charged conversations. And if it wasn't for my ethnic studies professor who really put everything in perspective and taught me the reason why countries would want to retaliate or want to attack America, I might have been stuck in that conservative public school, um, us versus everybody mentality. But then I learned about the histories of colonized people around the world. And I learned of all the reasons why countries would hate the U.S. for meddling in their politics. So it was really those two really important moments in my life that I was able to look at my surroundings and feel like a bigger part of something and that I wasn't just this victim of circumstance, whether it's because I was a young brown girl growing up or it's because I was somebody that wasn't born with a silver spoon in my mouth. Amazing. Uh, yeah, I definitely relate to to a lot of that. Just definitely seeing the school system and being like, why is this shit so fucked up? You know, just kind of asking those questions as a kid. And then I also went to... San Francisco State. I got my degree hey. from the College of Ethnic Studies. Hey, go Gators! The first uh, college, college of ethnic studies in the world. Exactly. That was started by the students of the Third World Liberation Movement. 1968. Yep. Mm -hmm. um, and then Balboa also, Balboa High has a history of organizing and, and, and um, a lot of educators that have gone through that space to, mm -hmm. to teach that kind of stuff to the kids. Yeah, the too. PEP program, especially. Um, yeah. My professor, Alison Tintiaco Kubala, she created one of the first ethnic studies uh, courses for high school kids and for uh, junior high kids that created a pipeline from pipeline. Denman, yeah, yeah. Denman through Balboa and to eventually out to the other schools like Betsy Carmichael and Philip Burton. So I'm very proud of my lineage, my educational lineage, of course, going through the public school system and actually being one of the few city kids that actually, just like us, there weren't any city kids at SF State. I was very confused about that. Like, who was... Who are all y'all? Yeah. Why y'all wearing flip-flops to school? It's right. cold outside. Like, I was confused why none of my peers were there. I was truly confused. And that was really what kind of set off the spark as, as far as uh, whether higher education was even accessible to my peers um, as it was for me. Yeah, and it's interesting because there's a lot of um, young Filipinos in the educational space from your generation, as mm -hmm. well as the hip hop space and 
just from what I've seen, just knowing some of y'all, like seeing how those two worlds come together, um, you know, workshops, things mm-hmm. like that. It's it's pretty dope to see that cohesiveness. Yeah, yeah. Filipinos have a long history of organizing, and we are one of the few um, groups of people that have that history in the Philippines as well, you know, with the People Power Movement. And that was something that I had experienced leaving the Philippines too. So the activism was in my blood before I had even left. It just needed to be activated by certain things like what I had just mentioned. Yeah, I went out to the Philippines for about a week up in Mindanao. Up in the world, I, I was following villages. and I saw. <laughs> right. I was so curious, like, was what like, is he doing in the end of now? <laughs> I was in the cuts. I was performing in <laughs> Chanelas with for a bunch you of little sure kids was. in the forest. You uh, damn near Filipino now. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I saw. I was like, okay, the organizing out here is real. It's like if mm-hmm. you don't organize, like, you know, you won't survive. Type, mm-hmm. type of type of situation. It was very grounding to see that. I'm jealous. I wish I got to have that experience. I, th- I think that's actually really amazing. And I hope I wish that every Filipino or Philam person was able to do that, what you did. Right on. Shout out to my boy Pele for hey. making it possible. What up, Pele? Yeah. Um, so at, at, at San Francisco State, you were pursuing journalism mm-hmm. as well. And what, what sparked that interest? Well, um, I've always been a writer. You know, I've writing poetry, writing raps, writing whatever, writing in my journal. And I was a very introspective kid. You know, I was the youngest, so my sisters were always out of the house with their boyfriends and stuff. And so I was stuck at the house with my parents, you know, and I was always writing in my journals. Um, But when I was in high school, I think I got like an in-house detention or something one day. And um, one of the teachers was like, okay, here's an extra credit. Why don't you go interview this dude who's coming to talk to us? Here's your assignment. And so I went, I prepared my questions and and I interviewed him and... And I had a knack for it where I felt like I was a good conversationalist. And when you grow up talking on the phone to whoever, to boys, to girls or whatever, you got to keep the conversation going. <laughs> so me talking on the phone in middle school, at the payphone, putting my quarters in, all of that, me getting all those books from Barnes and Nobles. It was like all these question books that I would have on deck, like, OK, when this conversation gets dry. Here's what you can go to. I never knew that it was going to end up becoming what I ended up doing. I just was interested like that in people. My curiosity was always about how much, um, not how much info I could get from you, but how much could I learn about you in this time that we spent together? So when I got to uh, SF State, I had I was never undeclared. I always wanted to be a journalism major. Um, And I just did not know how deep it went. Like, I did not know that it was more than just asking questions. It was about ethics. It was about um, who are you representing when you're asking these questions? What is your intention? Um, And also just um, making sure that the ethics part is still there. Because for me, I didn't realize, okay, yeah, I can interview an artist. I can interview a rapper. But if if the political situation wasn't right, I would have to be more sensitive to everything else going around. And I think that's what the art of journalism actually taught me. So I always knew I wanted to be a journalist. I just didn't know what that entailed. I just had mad journals and I still do. So that's why I use them for rap or for journalism. But a writer being a writer was uh, something that allowed me to transition into whatever it is that I wanted to do. That's dope. I think a lot of people who have gotten into journalism, especially hip-hop journalism, kind of had that same approach mm-hmm. where you kind of figure, you dive in and you figure it out as you go along because it's 
it's not, I mean, even if you go to journalism school, it's not like a, like a set formula of how to actually accomplish that as a career, right? Well, <laughs> they did not like me in the journalism department because I was like, why are we here? Why are we doing all this? Why aren't we actually going into the community? And there's like a real disconnect between journalists of color yeah. and white folks who, you know, are kind of like gentrifiers, right? Like I felt weird going into other communities and asking mad questions. I didn't know what that meant. But as I got older, I was like, oh, because there's a long history of these black and brown communities that have been infiltrated by people, um, journalists or whoever, and were exploited. Mm -hmm. And I didn't understand that. And I think there's a lot of cultural sensitivities that are not taught in journalism that I had to learn on my own, being somebody who felt very isolated in the SF State Journalism Department. Like, they tried to fail me. Like, mm -hmm. they literally kept three credits from me from graduating while I was um, filming for a reality show on uh, in, at Rolling Stone magazine. And this was for a magazine lab. Okay, like I had yeah. to go back and show them an article that was printed in Rolling Stone and be like, where are my three credits at? Where are they at? That's and crazy. I was even more mad when they gave them to me. Yeah, they were when, probably jealous too. Like, Psh, I never got my stuff in Rolling Stone. Oh, no. No, I knew they were jealous because um, I auditioned for that um, reality show and so did everybody in the journalism department. Uh, and so... You know, I yeah, came up in there haters. with my airbrush, with my grill. I knew. <laughs> I knew they were going to pick me. <laughs> my homeboy came in a three-piece suit. I looked at him like, like hell no. uh, good MTV, luck. Dog. Good luck, bro. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it, it takes more than just journalism to do what I do. You know, it takes a real understanding of the people that you talk to. And I think we don't have enough journalism journalists that come from the places and the people they're trying to interview. We just have all these infiltrators and these outside people. And so I think there's more of a cultural sensitivity and a regional sensitivity that needs to happen than I think I was able to fulfill. Yeah, I understand. There's definitely like a lot of like invasive journalism. Yeah, it's like, yeah. it's not even journalism. It's just provocation, straight yeah, up. Or like a fetishization, exotic exoticization exoticizing exoticize now tell yeah. me about that what do you mean exoticizing <laughs> well like uh, like I think, displaying like yeah. hey you're like this weird thing on display let yeah. me ask you about yeah. it okay yeah. like I see a lot of Vice documentaries shout out to Vice you can still you know if you want to interview me it's all good <laughs> but I see a lot of documentaries where it's like hey I'm Brian from Brooklyn, and today, yeah. well, I'm not really Brooklyn, but I live in Brooklyn for the last <laughs> six months. And today we're going to go interview uh, the cracked out Chicago yeah. gangbangers and put a microphone in their face and follow them around for a couple of days and see how they live. Yeah. And then I'm going to come back here to Brooklyn and, you know, it's just like and that talk kinda, all about it. Yeah. 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 Because, you know, as people of color, we can't be that fly on the wall. Like, we can't just be observers. People are looking at us. So when you look at somebody and you say, especially at Rolling Stone magazine, where the, the biggest criticism of me was I only covered hip hop. Well, I'm only going to cover what I know. And if you're going to send this rock and roll dude to this hip hop show, I don't think he's the right, right person. Right. So I think their idea before I came along was one reporter could do every single genre. And because of who they were, a white man, they were able to kind of be the authority on everything and not be questioned, but come a Filipino girl with a grill and I can't interview somebody like um, John Mayer or somebody or somebody like, you know, George Clinton. No, yeah. you know, so I think there was a lot of racism and sexism that's built into journalism 
um, and they only kind of use people that look like me as a token. Yeah, They're like, yeah. oh, here's the Connie Chung. Here's the Asian reporter that can go report on Asian news and Asian things that are happening. And that only makes things worse, as we right. can tell from the pandemic. Right, 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 right. Well, it sounds like you were pioneering in a way and probably a little bit ahead of your time in that sense. Yeah, they didn't understand me, man. They understand <laughs> me now, though. It's all good. <laughs> so, I mean, another thing I wanted to talk about, because you just published an article for KQED about your experience with Ruckus Magazine, which was a pretty monumental magazine for the early 2000s. I definitely would pick up copies I was trying to think, like, where did I even get that shit? Like, it had to be like Tower Records or Rescue. Tower Mutants. Records or yeah. like this, like this, this shoe store, mm-hmm. or the clothing store, yep. or market or something like that. It they was were free. Free, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. And there was also Stash Magazine, correct? Yes, that came after. That came after. Mm-hmm. Okay, that was the okay. same uh, graphic designer um, and salesperson, but that wasn't the same team. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, did that come? Were you? Did you start working with? Ruckus um, while you were still in school? Yes. Okay. Yes. That's probably why I wanted to leave so bad because I was like, I'm already doing journalism. What What are you here to teach me? But I was probably in my last year of, uh, of journalism school when I actually started editing that magazine. So um, how did that magazine come together and, and uh, who were some of the people involved? Um, well, it was a Craigslist ad. Surprisingly, my my homegirl forwarded to me was like, hey, I know you're a journalist and you're working on this story about Bay Area rap. Here's a magazine that's looking. And, you know, Craigslist, you never know. You're like, is it going to be good? Is it going to be shady? Is it going to be crazy? Um, but once they pulled me in and they realized that I was the only one on staff that was actively in journalism school, um, they, you know, promoted me and we were able to bring in a bunch of people that I knew that were legit. Um, and so... I started Ruckus when I was in journalism school, but let me tell you, 2004, 2005, 2006 was some active years for journalism. And so when you say pioneering, I'd like to think there was just all in alignment because my journalism career, um, the death of Mac Dre subsequently, and then the rise of the hyphy movement was really the only reason why I made it to the heights that I did before the entire industry actually fell apart. So it was all like supreme alignment for me. Yeah, there's a lot going on. And um, Ruckus was dope. So, I mean, it was like fashion, music. It was culture. Culture. Yeah. So let me answer a question from earlier. It was two Asian American founders and um, one of them was a DJ for Wild 94.9 back in the day. And so he had the like kind of mainstream plugs. The other guy, he owned a printing press. Mm. And so our offices were right next to the printers. And that was like the real plug that made us independent from these other New York style magazines that Davey D ended up telling me later on were just an offshoot of Atlantic Records and all these other records. We were a truly independent magazine. Um, And so we had writers from everywhere that I edited their stories. We had contributors, basically anybody and everybody that wanted to contribute, we gave them a shot. And we put him in the magazine. So when you see it, it's not just one genre, one specific type of hip hop or even hip hop. Some of it was R&B. Some of it was reggae. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was dope. I mean, it's pretty much every, you had East Coast artists in there. I remember Mm -hmm. there was a ghost face Mm -hmm. interview I read back Mm -hmm. in the day. This is when me and my friends were first starting to rap and and we were like getting out. This was a hell of a time to start too mm-hmm. because we were around all this shit right after Mac Dre died and and doing shows with with some of these dudes like Jacka and 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 
Nicotina and all mm-hmm. them. Um, and yeah, there was like Zion I in there. Mm-hmm. There was the, the mob music. There was the high road kind of music. There was Crown City Rockers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There was DJs. Damian Marley. There yeah, was different. We, right. we we tried our best because, you know, the the founders are Asian American. You know, and I think they wanted to make sure that they <clears> felt <throat> like they had credibility in the scene and they weren't just appropriating and they wanted to make sure that they weren't just taking the kind of music that they like. They wanted to have a more well-rounded approach. So that's why for me, um, as a writer and as an editor, I was seeing like these Maxim magazines that were coming out that had more playful articles and more like Q&As and like illustrations. And I was moving away from the classic Q&A interview, like Murder Dog and all that stuff. So I was like, let's have fun. Let's do a gold teeth quiz. Let's do a a white tee fashion spread where we took every single white tee from every brand and we we had them up. (laughs) That was like my first great idea. It was like a white tee from Gap versus a white tee from Dolce & Gabbana. Like how much do they cost? So those are the fun little things that we got to do that I think broke through social media because the Bay is you got to live here to understand you got to know somebody here to understand and we were kind of just like the interpreters for the rest of the world yeah I think it came across like that I mean it was a time when the Bay Area was particularly like unified at least culturally and and, and coming together around the hyphy movement and everyone was excited about what was what was going on so I think uh, ruckus came about like right place right time uh, in, in the article you wrote, which was which was really good and interesting, thanks um, for reading. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you mentioned that you would kind of butt heads with some of the people there, mm-hmm. and you also mentioned that you you started in, in, encountering some misogyny and some sexism. You mm-hmm. mentioned like the dime of the month or something like that. Right? Dime of the month. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was a thing, you yeah, know, y'all, yeah. y'all saw it in uh, The Source and Double XL. They even had whole spinoff magazines like Vibe Vixen and King. And Shout King. Out to King. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure that I've got heard, I've heard, I've never, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it was, it was, it was accepted. It was commonplace. Yeah. So yeah. it wasn't, it wasn't like encountering misogyny. It was like, how much of it could I stomach until I actually had to say something, you know? So what are your thoughts on that? Because I've heard this from, I always like to get women's perspective on my art for multiple reasons. And I also like to include women in my art. I don't like to, uh, you know, smack girls with $100 bills in my videos and stuff like you that. You don't? No. Maybe outside of my videos every now and then. Uh, Maybe if it's consensual. If it's consensual, you know. Um, But, you know, I just don't, I'm mindful about what I put out there, but I do like to include it. And I've had women say, tell me that when a woman is just in the background of a video, Mm. that's when they kind of like, okay, yeah, you're including us, but it's for men. Mm -hmm. When a woman has a more central role in the video, Okay, that feels a little more inclusive and interesting, right? So, what, what, how are you trying to navigate that kind of stuff, uh, especially around putting out a magazine that had like a section like Dime of the Month? It was hard for me because, you know, there was somebody that was, I wasn't the editor for the first two uh, um, issues. So, I came on and I kind of just inherited every section. And they felt like we had to do that. Like, this is the readership of hip hop. You have to talk to the men of hip hop and you have to give them what they want. So there's a certain acceptance of the institutional voice in journalism, which is the number one thing I had a problem with. It was like, 
what is the institutional voice you're speaking from? And if that institution to me is oppressive, then I no longer want to speak in that voice once I am able to. But like I said, when you're a journalist, you can't, I, I got an F for even putting the word I in any of my papers. Like, yeah. You cannot speak from first person objective at all. Type of, you have to be objective. Yeah. But let's be real. In ethnic studies, people of color cannot be objective because of the things that we faced. And so part of it was my journalistic training of like, just keep your head down do everything that you're supposed to be doing. And another it was another part of it was like my political self that was like, I have a voice, I have an opinion, I am a person, I have feelings. So how do I feel when I'm in a listening session and an artist is like, I'ma smack the bitch up, I'ma I'm stick my dick in her face. And how am I supposed to feel when I'm like the editor? Like, you're like, great job, guys. Cool. I like that beat. That's, you know, who, who's that on that sample? Like, it's weird no matter what. And But the sad thing is, is that it made me realize that there are so many rooms like that in hip hop with zero women. Yeah. And there was one time that I like to remember that maybe was maybe the start of me understanding that I had more power than I thought I had was we were in a listening session for San Quinn and, um, we were listening to a song that was obviously about women because there always has to be one woman song, whether it's a stripper song or it's a love song. And he stopped the song and he turned and he addressed me. And he was like, sis, I'm just letting you know, this is what we saw growing up. This is something that we grew up watching. So I don't want you, he didn't apologize, but he just wanted to contextualize it for me. He stopped the whole session. And, you know, back then I was not trying to make no way. So I was like, no, 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 it's all good. No, 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 go ahead, play that. It sounds great. But then when I realized that, like, there are not enough men that feel accountable to that and there are not enough women in the room to make men feel accountable to that, then that's how you know that the, the function of hip hop is to really uphold the what men want, basically, and the perspective of men. And for me, um, that's kind of what set me on the path to start making my own music was yeah. I was like, there has to be people out there that want something different. There, there's so many women that know every word of Too Short that want to hear something from a woman's perspective. And I think what you see right now with all the women that are out, like we are absolutely doing that right now. It's a really interesting catch-22 because here in the Bay, it's a lot of, uh, it's a huge pimp culture. Exactly. Uh, we just had Mac Magic Mike from Richmond on the last episode mm. and who started pimping at 14 and rapping about the things he was doing. And he, he made it real clear that he doesn't, he regrets that lifestyle, but mm -hmm. at the same time, he was a wild kid on the street with mm -hmm. no guidance on the streets and this mm -hmm. is the life he was living. Uh, and then you also have that thing where like, I think there's a lot of like feminism and strong like women in the Bay Area but then when you hear that Mac Dre, um, and I treat, I treat my, my bitch like an ACM yeah. card. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We the, still say it. Yeah, yeah. We have a very um, special kind of feminism in the Bay. Like, we understand pimp, pimp culture. We talk pimp culture. We were once proud. We once called ourselves female pimps. And then once we grew up and realized that, no, no, there's not really a such thing as that as far as, like, the power imbalance. Um we learn to kind of compartmentalize in that way, just like um, the other men did. Like we grew up in a certain way, but that doesn't mean that we perpetuate this behavior. Yeah. We gonna speak up, but that doesn't mean that our upbringing was wrong. 
It just what yeah, was yeah. what it was. Yeah, I think you kind of got to put that out there because what the fuck? Nobody wants to hear somebody rapping about eating granola and fucking, you know. I mean, maybe. I, I, I wouldn't mind there it. There are some rappers <laughs> that be out there talking about granola. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, granola a rhymes with a lot of everything. stuff. Yeah, but you know what I'm saying? Like, you, you know, we got, you got to have some type of subject matter that can speak to these realities that we grew up in. I, I've lost people to violence. I despise violence, but I don't mind listening to some gangster shit. You yeah, know what I mean? If yeah. it's done, if it comes from the right place. Well, if it's authentic. I think the yeah. most important thing is like, is this this person's real experience? Is this their voice? Am I hearing their story? Or are they just glorifying a story? Are they appropriating yeah. a story? And are they accountable? And a lot of them OGs, you know, they're not around anymore. And it just shows you. It's like when you have longevity in the game, then you are intentional about your audience. And I think that this is a important time in hip hop where men need to understand and what they're seeing is a lot of women come up doing a lot of the same behavior that they did and they don't like it no more. They're like, oh, now y'all talking like us. Now there's this whole like Bay Area women be like, there's like a whole meme yeah. of how we be like dudes and we just be, <laughs> we be like yeah, treating crazy. men like, you know, yeah. like we the pimps. And that's fine with me because at the end of the day, um, I think that as a as a as a woman of color growing up in San Francisco, I can contain all of those conflicting things. My favorite artist, like Tupac Shakur, is complex in that way, and um, we can we can correct the things in ourselves that we like while also saying, "No, you're human." Your upbringing was different. And now that you're an adult and you know better, you're going to do better, right? So that's the expectation. Yeah, I think that's really good dialogue because I don't like when people are too much like, that's not hip hop. You're promoting negativity and violence and blah, blah, blah. It's just like, just shut up, man. Just enjoy the music. Yeah. Sometimes just enjoy the just music. Just let people bro. express yeah. themselves because hip hop comes from black and brown folks, you know? And, and I think that when it comes from us, it's like, Oh no, don't you know, don't do that. But when you look everywhere else, it's like this is American culture. This is Western culture. You can't just blame everything on hip hop because right. that patriarchy and that misogyny goes way deep way and it's deep. in every yeah. genre. So it's not just hip hop. That's right. That's right. So as you're dealing with ruckus and you're um, coming across these issues, you also get the opportunity to audition for this MTV show that you mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, what was the show called and how did that opportunity come together and what was that experience like? It was crazy. It was on. It was a MySpace bulletin. So that's definitely like, I was already on my way out. I was already like, I can't do this no more. I can't. They're going mainstream. They're doing all this other stuff. I thought it was going to stay local. Like, I wanted to stay underground. Like, I wanted to be like... So something, I must have prayed or something. Somebody was looking out for me, but it came in the form of um, a casting call of send in an audition tape for this reality show between MTV and Rolling Stone for an unnamed reality show where you get to live in New York for a summer um, and vie for a contributing editor position on the magazine for a year. And at that time... I was already on my way out to Ruckus and I never told them. And so by the time I had left Ruckus or they had fired me or let me go, I was already on my second round of auditions. Because I told you about my airbrush sweater, right? I made the first round. I get to LA and uh, by the time they choose me, um, I'm already out the magazine. They're already trying to do it without me. And I'm over here like, bruh, 
you're going to want to let me film in that office that I used to have because <laughs> these MTV fools are coming through right now and you're going to want to be a part of this. Right. And so it was kind of like, um, it was, if I could teach a class about manifestation, that would be the moment that I'm like, something that I wanted that was greater than what I had came to me and kind of swooped me out. And then I was able to move to New York when I was 23 years old, film for two months, live in an apartment that was like, I didn't have to pay for. And let me tell you, that rent came under that door one day and I looked at it and I was like, y'all pay what for me? Like, this is crazy. For somebody coming from the city like that, um, it was like, it, it was like it fell out of the sky. So basically this reality show asked us to film for like, I don't know, like maybe two and a half months. And then, and then after we had filmed, um, whoever won had to keep it a secret for the following like seven to eight months. And mm -hmm. I had one at that point. Nobody knew I had to come back to the Bay, go back to a retail job, act like I didn't win and just wait for the, for the series to come out. And wow. they try to play me on that series because I won, you know, so they're trying to create this whole narrative arc. What was the criteria to win? Uh, you just had to be a good journalist, I guess. I was the only one who gave sources. It was like judges or something? or It was Rolling weird. Stone editors? Yeah, or? it was a Rolling Stone uh. editor. So the thing that we knew, and the funny part was, is that I loved everybody on that cast. Like, we were all really good friends, and we loved each other from the moment we met. So we all made a pact at that first audition. It was like, hey, they ain't kicking none of us out. There is no elimination challenge. We, we finna stay the whole summer. So I don't give a damn who win. We just finna have hell of fun. And we we're like, all right. So we all shook on it. And basically, it was almost like whoever got the most opportunities and hustled them. And for me, it was like what it came down to was DMX is performing in Harlem, right? I go to, I go to Harlem. I secure an interview with DMX. I get on that bus with, uh, with DMX. I interview him. Nobody set that up for me. I was able just from my pimp game. You were hustling. <laughs> from my mouthpiece, was yeah. able to find a way to get on that bus, talk to DMX, make him a fan of mine just because I was a true fan of his and was able to secure that interview. I did that with Snoop Dogg. I did that with Ludacris. I did that with... Um, basically every hip-hop person I talked to, and they didn't need to do anything for me. I had my own plugs, and so I was able to flex that. And um, at the end, when they announced me the winner, um, I was just super proud because Rolling Stone came from San Francisco. And it had, I didn't know that. Yeah, it started um, in San Francisco as a zine, and it was a very counterculture counterculture newsletter until it went to Manhattan. And that's when it kind of sold its mm. soul. So me and my boy, Russell, who also was from the city, city native, we had a handshake and we said, whoever takes a home for the city, we're going to be hella happy. He had all Frisco the last day. And, and when I won, we were just super happy that one of us from the city took it back because we knew what Rolling Stone had become. Yeah. But we wanted to bring it home to the city for what it stood for in the past, which was the counterculture, um, the folks of the movement, and rock and roll at its essence basically was with the folks that are on Hay Street that are not the rich people. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, that experience for me was really important because it showed me that um, 
not only am I bigger than the opportunities that come into my lap, but because of who I am, I'm able to turn that into something that nobody else can make. And so I was able to take home um, the contributing editor position plus the money that came with it for a year. So that's, that's how awesome. I had my first son. <laughs> was that last year? I was like, mm, okay, I guess it's time to have a baby now because I'm getting a check. So <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, when you got to Rolling Stone, was there a difference between expectation and reality? Oh my gosh. You know, they say never meet your heroes, yeah. right? Oh my. Never work for them either. Never huh? work for them either. It was sad. <laughs> it was like, I think a lot of us were grappling with that. The non-glamour of being in a cubicle with a whole bunch of editors that were just, you know, either Nepo babies or regular people. Like my, my mentor, um, Austin Skaggs, he was a writer, like a star writer for Rolling Stone, but his dad was Boss Gags, who was like a huge jazz oh, yeah. musician. Yeah. Yeah, he used to own Slims too. Exactly. Shout so, out to Boss Gags. <laughs> Shout there out to and your son down. Austin. <laughs> yeah. So if you wanted to be a staff writer, you might have had to have a famous dad or somebody. Yeah, this is Boss Gags' son, you guys. Exactly. We yeah. got a little man. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> the interns were unpaid. And I was like, how do you do this work unpaid? So it was definitely a rude awakening for um, somebody who was like, oh, my God, what is, is it like? Is it like almost famous? Like, is it, you know, yeah. like I, you never know what it was like. But it was very much like any other white male owned corporation that was you know, where money was the bottom line. And that was the disappointing part. Yeah, it's such a difficult thing to grapple with when you pursue a creative career and then you find out the industry is an industry. An industry, yeah. exactly. And so that's why, um, you know, I had to take my identity out of being the writer and being like, okay, it's not about me. It's not about me, you know, and my background as a person. This is just how things work. And the industry kind of worked itself out because not— too long after that, you know, social media came around and then journalists weren't even needed anymore. Yeah, right. And so that's, you know, whether it was um, me being at the precipice of social media or me riding the last wave of journalism out the door and taking everything that I can get, that's what happened. And I was able to say that I was able to reach the tippy top of the peak and say that when I wanted to work for Rolling Stone and I said it out loud— it was less than six months later that I was actually there in that office and working and ended up becoming a contributing editor. That's amazing. And then, I mean, you've also um, contributed to Double XL, mm -hmm. The Source, Mass Appeal. Were those all opportunities that kind of came out of what you're doing with Rolling Stone? And they were and they weren't because um, <clears throat> the New York publishing industry is very clicky. And... Um, how can I say it? A lot of the writers are squares. Like, they just, like they're, they're not like us. You know what I mean? So when I was coming up in journalism, I actually met this guy at the Shattuck Download or something. Mm. And I had a journalism assignment to interview a stranger. Mm. And he lucked out that day because I think he was just trying to holler at me. But <laughs> I was like, Okay, well, if you're going to talk to me, I might as well interview a stranger. And so I interviewed him and he ended up being a journalist. Mm. And he was like, I didn't tell you what I did. I was like, no. And he's like, I'm a journalist. And I was like, what? And so that's another one of those alignment things that I feel like happened. And so Puerto Rican cat from um, Brooklyn ended up becoming my best friend working for The Source while I was at Rolling Stone. Mm. And got me my first cover stories 
not through Rolling Stone, but because that was my best friend. Wow. And not only that, but my very first cover story was um, after I won was for Kamora Lee Simmons. And they were like, why is Kamora Lee Simmons on the source? Yes, I get it. But because she was an Asian American woman and she knew that I had just won, she wanted an Asian American woman to write her story. So that was like my first. She requested that to. To to my editor at wow. the time. And so once I started getting those opportunities, I started having really good relationships with my editors, like my editor, Ryan Ford at um, The Source. Um, I couldn't get into XXL because Elliot Wilson is a whole nother story. But I was able to get to pitch it to Double um, XL. Before then, I was at Mass Appeal, which I loved Mass Appeal. And the editor was McLean Jackson, who was from Berkeley. And he actually linked up with me and was like, yo, we need somebody out in the Bay telling us these stories. So basically, um, when Hyphy popped off, they needed an expert. Yeah. And I was already there, primed and ready to go. And that's how I was able to get my foot in the door and then make those relationships with not just my friends, but uh, the editors that needed a voice like mine. Yeah, that's a lot of groundwork. We're talking, just going through this story as I'm hearing it from beginning in high school all the Mm -hmm. way to there. It's a lot of of work you were putting in. Yeah, definitely. But it seems like in the span of my life that maybe it only happened in like a couple years. So it just shows you that like when things happen, you got to be ready. You got to maximize it. And then also you got to also learn to walk away when it ain't right. So yeah. Is there is there one particular piece that you wrote in those times that you're most proud of? In those times, the Wu-Tang piece. I, I wrote a piece on Wu-Tang and while I was interviewing them, and let me tell you, they were all in the room. They were all in one room because they were all touring for Rock the Bells. Mm. And their publicist said, you are the only U.S. journalist to interview all of Wu-Tang Clan. Like, as I was doing it, I was like, oh, shit, I'm mad nervous. (laughs) But um, it was something like, and I was pregnant. I was seven months pregnant with my son. So he technically met Wu-Tang while he was in the womb. (laughs) But um, I had to win them over because as an artist now, I know you don't want to do interviews with journalists. You never know what they're going to ask you. You never know how they're going to come. And when I came in there, being the conversationalist I am, I was able to engage all of them. Um, Method Man, he didn't like journalists, so I had to talk to him later on the phone and because of Wendy Williams. And I was going to say, I was, that's exactly yeah, what came to my mind. exactly. So <laughs> he, and he did not want to talk to me. He was giving me one word uh, answers on the phone until I asked him. I said, okay, here's a question that's off the record. What's better, Amsterdam or Cali weed? And then that's what kind of opened him up to talking to me more. And I basically was like, listen, I'm not like them other journalists that you're used to. Like, I'm a freelancer. Um, and also, I'm on the show called Rolling Stone. I'm from Rolling Stone. And he was like, word? Oh, yeah, yeah. I was shooting with Russell for the scene, blah, blah, blah. So he was actually shooting with one of my castmates. And he knew exactly who I was. Mm. So um, that Wu-Tang story, for me, just for hip-hop, a hip-hop lover, and being able to talk to RZA, Ray, ghost in the same room um, and not lose their interest to me was like the mark of a journalist. So I feel like I really made it at that moment. Yeah. I don't even think cats in Wu-Tang get the opportunity to be in a room with everyone from Wu-Tang <laughs> exactly. these days. I had to ask them like, how did y'all split the 
the pay back in the day. They're yeah. like, sometimes. Rizzo was like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, he was like, no, 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 bong, bong, son, bong, bong. <laughs> but yeah, that was that was wonderful because I felt like, wow, I really made it, and, and I'm pregnant, so my son gets all of this, all of this. Yes, yeah, right wow, that's that's badass. Yeah. And, and someone else that you you brought him up earlier, and I know you were close to him, and you you covered him, and got to know him a lot through the years. Was the Jacka mm-hmm. very special person? Someone we all miss dearly. Um, what was what was your relationship like with him, and what are some of the experiences that stick out from your time together? Well, you know, the Jack he was very special um, because he was a student of hip hop. He loved hip hop. He knew exactly what we were trying to do, Ruckus Magazine and also me. He knew we were trying to put the bay on the map. He knew we were trying to push, push the needle, push the movement forward. Whatever we were trying to do, we were like, I was that girl in New York. Like, you ain't got no too short, you hella weak, blah, blah, blah. Like getting into fights with DJs because they didn't have not one Bay Area mm. artist. So when I met the Jack, um, I was still a new journalist he had just come out with the Jack Artist, um, which is my favorite album, one of my favorite albums of all time. And um, when I met him, um, we met up at like in Hunter's Point in front of this mural. And then we went to Dolores Park and we just chopped it up. And through that interview, I got tight with his manager, PK. Shout out to PK. Shout out to PK. And um we would just link up for Ruckus Magazine because we ended up putting uh, the rest of Mob Figures in there. I ended up meeting the rest of the crew, Rob Lowe, Fetty. Um, I never met AP9. I met I met some, yeah, just, just the one, the Bay Area ones. And they, that first of all, that album was amazing. Jack yeah, Artist. Like, monumental. That was during a hyphy time where that was not a hyphy release. Yeah. But... It was a Bay Area mob music style release. And it it was just such a representative of a bridge between East Coast and West Coast. And like every single song was amazing. And I just couldn't believe there was an artist like Jack that existed that nobody else knew about. And so for me, I took him everywhere I went. Like when I went to Rolling Stone and they asked me my three favorite albums, I said, In a Sentimental Mood by Duke Ellington and John Coltrane. I said, D'Angelo, um, Voodoo. And I said, Jack, the Jack artist. And so when I won Rolling Stone, the first thing that he said to me was, you put me in Rolling Stone magazine. I love you forever for that. And I said it was nothing. It was like literally nothing for me. And um, that was the kind of relationship that we had was like, um, he knew that I was always going to look out for him on the journalism side. And so that when me and my cousin would roll up to the spots, he would make sure we got in safely. He would yeah. make sure we were never waiting in line. And that's not how a lot of artists roll. Like they would strong arm people to make sure that we were safe and that we were cool. Any backstage that I went to where I saw him, he could be in a room with a bunch of guys and I'll walk in there and it's all love. And everybody in that room had to respect me simply because I had a relationship with Jack. And so that was the kind of relationship that um, I never had with any other artist. So when when he passed, I was actually working at Castlemont a couple blocks away from where it happened. Right. And um, it was really hard because I had taken a break from writing for a long time and um, was just not wanting to do it, just had lost the passion for it. And so after he passed, um, Vice, speaking of Vice, uh, Noisy hit me up and uh, asked me to write a memorial for him. And that was actually like my comeback article. 
Oh, yeah. I believe I read that at the time, actually. Mm -hmm. I hadn't written for a long time, and I have felt like I had owed it to Jack to write something from somebody who actually knew and loved him. Because I know how they be trying to do us when stuff like that happens in the news. So he was an amazing person, a beautiful person. Um, You know, he's—I'm not trying to— Make him look like a saint, but he treated me with the utmost respect in my family. Sure. He um, he was the type of person that knew how to value those kinds of relationships and how to respect. He was a really respectful guy. Respectful and yeah. accessible. And yeah. he will stop and talk to anybody yeah. that wants to get some <clears throat> game from him. And that's like, to me, is like such an indication of a Bay Area artist that they're just giving that game away for free and not being stingy about it. Like he was a true, true artist through and through. And that's why for me, like I wrote a song about it um, called Brother Like You in my last album. And I just said that Bay is never going to be the same for me again. So I will always look back on that time with fondness, but it will never be what it was for me. Rest in peace, Jack. Rest in peace, Jack. Love you. Um, Happy Jack History Month. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Divine (laughs) time right there. Um, As as we were talking about Making music, I think that's a good transition mm-hmm. to segue into the birth of Rocky Rivera, the mm-hmm. artist. Mm-hmm. You said you were writing. I assume you were writing mm-hmm. rhymes and stuff the whole time. But mm-hmm. in 2010, you decided to come out with a project. Yes. Self-titled. Self-titled. Mm-hmm. Um, I dropped Rocky Rivera. Well, I first dropped a mixtape called The Married to the Hustle Mixtape. And that was um, kind of like during the streetwear era. So I had like my folks at Magic passing out CDs and stuff for me, like free mixtapes. That was like kind of like dipping my toes in it Mm -hmm. um, because I had learned how to record myself and do stuff like that because I moved down to LA. Um, But the first album for me was like a big deal because, you know, it was the first time that the technology was actually accessible. And, um, you know, all these OG uh, rappers would be like, man, when I used to go to the studio, we used to have to take these big old reels and we used to have to wind them all up. And I'm like, you know what, OG, it ain't that time no more. So, so there was, it was for me like, wow, I can finally write from my perspective. I can finally write raps that I want to write. Like I can write from my voice, not the institutional voice. I can have an opinion now. And that was truly the most liberating experience just to say like, I don't know what a religious person feels like, but when you're up there on that stage rapping your lyrics, it's like gospel. It's it's crazy, like to me. And that was an experience of my writing that I had never experienced, which was you write it down. Usually I just close it and nobody else sees it or somebody reads it, maybe publishes it. But this is me actually speaking with my voice. And so I, I felt like it was incredibly empowering for me, even if the industry wasn't ready for it just yet. I don't feel like they were. Probably not, but um, I mean, speaking of empowering, I know, like, just from seeing you perform, being at some of your shows, being around you and some of the collective, uh, the Filipino community, women, Filipino women, I mean, I feel like you empowered them by setting that example. Thank you. Um, and, And that was dope to see as well. Yeah, I mean... Pinais and Filipinas, I mean... Because who else? I mean, it's, it, we're, who was first? You or Hopi Spitz Heart? 
me and Hope used to live together <laughs> at Brazil and Madrid. So we dropped at the same time. Okay, we even okay. shared a producer. Is that right? Okay. <clears throat> yeah, that was my, uh, we have a, we even have a song called Sco Nails together that talks about all of our favorite nail shops on Mission Street. So I'll play <laughs> that for you someday. I go bump that. It's, it's called dope. Sco Nails. <clears throat> it was supposed to be a riff off of Pro Nails from Kid Sister. Um, but yeah, me and Hopi, we came out around the same time um, and we were living together at the same time. And, and at first, it was like, it sucked because they were pitting us against each other. They were like, oh, there could only be one Pinai rapper from this city. Was there any prior on Wax? There, not, on, not that I know of on Wax. I know that there was a Pinai rapper named Precise who moved to uh, Vegas. And that was the only other one that I oh, knew. Oh, yeah. Precise Love. Yes, yeah, yes. shout out to Precise. See, I be knowing, but I was looking. <laughs> I was like, ain't nobody out there that look like she me, was, sound like me. She was out before you. Oh, she's oh, older than me. Yeah, oh, she's older that. than me. And then she stopped rapping completely and moved to Vegas, I feel like. Mm. And so there was never one actively in the scene before me. And we're not just talking the Bay. We're talking the country. The country, yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't know any other Pinai rapper. I'm not trying to toot my own horn, but I definitely didn't have anybody that I could reach out to to, to get no, on their no. album or their well, tour. If you're, you're going to set the record straight and the timeline straight, this is the place to do it. Well, History of the Bay. Trailblazing Rocky Rivera. Yeah, go do your research. Go look it up. <laughs> go see when it came out. Go compare it. But all I got to say is I ain't got no problems with any other Pinai rappers. I 100% love and appreciate every Pinai that gets on that stage because I know how hard it is. Shout out to my girl, Hopi Spits Hard. Shout out to all the women in the Beat Rock Music Collective, including Faith Sentia, Ruby Abada, and Classy, who we got. Um, a dope-ass song called Us, representing all the Pinais. Um and holding all the different styles of hip-hop that we do, because there isn't just one style that we're doing. Yeah, I mean, it's been dope for me to see that. Just looking back on it now, because we're talking offline about when I first met Bamboo, and I first met you, and mm -hmm. first getting around some of the the um, this beat rock movement. Shout-out to Kiwi, shout-out to Pele, shout-out to Power Struggle. Um, looking back on it now, you can see where all that stuff has gone with what Ruby is doing and, and some of the other artists that you mentioned and uh it's cool to see that evolution yeah and it and it needs to happen and i think that when we made that collective it was to prove a point to say that you know you don't have to have like the one conscious rapper on your label you don't even have to have the one conscious rap woman in the one mainstream you don't have to do that you can make the kind of music that you want to make from a community-based perspective so big up to beat rock music for showing us that it's possible to do that but before we get into beat rock music i gotta ask on, on my nardware shit what is gorilla bus fair music a gorilla bus fair music <laughs> that was a gorilla bus fair music came from a blog that i used to write called gorilla bus fair okay and um that's a dope title yeah you I know, know what? exactly what it means you're talking about sneaking on the back of the 40 or something <laughs> exactly yeah. exactly you know us city kids know all <laughs> i told you about all the muni bus stories that we got but for me it was like about the everyday the everyday political prisoner the everyday warrior that's just Dealing, you know, like it's not about guerrilla warfare every day. Sometimes it's just about getting enough money to get on the bus. And um, back in the day when I was on them blogs, a lot of motherfuckers was hating. They were like, she's stupid. She don't, she sound like shit. She just, just all sorts of shit. And what I had read was the only way that you can combat that is to have something else that they can find 
that people can find you. And so my first readership and my consistency, that's not even a word, my consistency <laughs> of writing now is was kind of eked out from having that blog called Gorilla Bus Fair. It was sick. I had like this yellow school bus that was all like laced out, like <laughs> for my header, you know, on my on my blog spot or whatever. Right. And um, it wasn't journalism, but it was a way pre-social media for people to really engage with me after seeing me on television. And and the way that they edited me was hella racist, you know. The, mm. the way that they edited me was hella sexist. Like, they even edited me to sound like I was trying to holler at an artist when I was just They, literally, like, chopped up the video? Yeah, no, they absolutely wow. did. Like, because they asked, they were like, I was talking to LP of Def Jokes, and they were asking them, like, who, I was asking, like, who would you collaborate with? And they cut it to like, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, I can, you know, I can hook up with you and do like something. I was like, what? You ain't even my type. Like, what? Like, of all the rappers, LP? No, nah, nah, that's not. I mean, no diss to you, LP. But I'm just saying, like, how you going to do that? Like, come on. Like, I know what I'm getting into. Like, don't do that. So it was a way for me to speak with my own voice and also combat all the haters and all the comment blogs pre-social media. So Gorilla Bus Fair, I was busting on fools, too. I was getting into my little internet beefs and like going off on people. And I even like went at Jeff Chang at one point and was clowning on his like him having his belt all the way up right here. And that caused all the hip hop stylists to come talk, calling me a diaper baby and stuff. And he paved the way for you and all this stuff. And I'm like, he ain't paved the way for no. I was like an internet banger back there because I was like, <laughs> there ain't no report button back in the day. There ain't no like block button back in the day. You just got to kind of take it. So Gorilla Bus Fair for me was kind of like, that was how I was in real life. Like, I'm not letting you get away with disrespecting me. I'm not going to let you um, speak on me. I'm going to take full control of my words and my narrative. Um, and I'm going to have the last word. So that's really what that represents. I knew there was a dope story. <laughs> that's good. That's a good one. I like that. <laughs> so we've you, you, you went into your career as a rapper in uh, touring, releases, learning the game, getting exposure. Um, at what point did you meet Bamboo? Yeah, that's a good question. Cause my son seems to think that he created me or something. Cause I'm like, this, <laughs> he thinks this, that Bam I know, created I, you. Well, I created him. So I said, <laughs> okay. first of all, you be quiet. Second of all, um, how else would we have met if I wasn't already out there rapping? You know, and there's many, there's many versions of the story, and I and I wrote in my book that there is an EP that exists. Mm. Um, called Thanks for the Weekend Part 1, 2, and 3, where it's basically him trying to holler at me and me being like, nope, nope, nope. But he hollered at me during the show, um, before the show. And I was just so like... Before the MTV show? Before the MTV uh -huh. show. And that's why I'm, I oh, named my mix. Oh, like, oh, you're a journalist, huh? Well, he was trying to get a ruckus. He's uh -huh. still mad at me that he wasn't able to get a ruckus <laughs> magazine. For those who don't know who we're talking about, shout out to the homie Bamboo, amazing uh, rapper, Mwah, activist. Love you. Uh, originally from LA, based out here in the Bay Area now. My partner, my life partner. Yes. We're not married though, so you're not married. I'm his wifey um, under common law, but you know, <laughs> as a feminist, I'm not. I don't really believe in all that wedding shit, so that marriage shit. But uh, we met because. Um, he came, yeah, he came up to me at Hip Hop in the Park, and like Kiwi was like, "Hey, yo, there she goes, there she goes." Our editor of Ruckus Magazine, 
go try to get in that magazine. And he didn't know that I had already been fired. So I was sitting there with some outdated business cards. I like how cards. Kiwi sent him, like, you go yeah, get her, go, 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 We got to get in this magazine. She's there. <laughs> yeah. And so he came in, was like trying to talk to me about grills or something. Okay. He's from LA. Okay. What LA guy you know about grills? So he was like, where did you get your grill from? I was like, oh yeah, I got her from Brooklyn. It's at this spot. And I knew he was not really trying to ask me about no grill, but I was like, you know what? I'm going to talk to you for a second, then I'm going to go this way. And then I gave him my card. And when he called it, the number was already disconnected. And he's like, oh, she played me. She played me. So um, then when he met me as a rapper, I was with this crew called Rapsodistas, And I started rapping and um, we opened up for his crew, Native Guns. And uh, he had a girlfriend at the time, I think. So like, he was trying to holler at me and I was on stage and I was like, nah, nah, not trying to hear that. And then later on when he was touring with, with, um, cause we going to set the record straight here. Right. Right. Um, he was touring and then he hollered at me, but I was already on that MTV show. And you know, you know how, when you go on real world and there's always that person that's in a relationship yeah. and they fighting with their boyfriend they on like the fly phone. in for the weekend and then get in a big ass argument yeah and, because yeah. of the roommate they yeah. trying to hook i was never that girl i was like <laughs> i'm never gonna let a man stand in the way between me and my dreams like never no man is ever signing a release form to be on this so <laughs> i was like about this you know i was about the hustle and so he had to wait until i got back from new york because i didn't know if i was coming back and um, when I got back, that's when we really started linking. Cause I was like, this this industry shit is for the birds. I'm gonna make a family. Cause I done already seen the tippy top and I don't like it. So yeah. I, I was able to come back home knowing that I won. He didn't even know I won until I moved mm. in with him mm. and was pregnant. Oh already. shit. <laughs> <laughs> I can keep a secret. So, you know, uh, we met at that time and um he was he was turned with Native Guns and I had never seen um, an artist like him that was good. He was an amazing rapper and it was like not for a Filipino rapper. Like it's like, oh, he's good for a Filipino rapper. No, he was dope. You know, yeah. everywhere he went. Man, it was bamboo gangster, man. I, 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 he got bars. Yeah. yeah. And so I was I had never seen an artist like him and also an artist that was so similar to me where it was like we were from the places that we rapped about. And we didn't, we weren't trying to sound corny. We weren't trying to appropriate. And he was also like a military kid too, you right. know? So we understood, he, you know, he was in the Marines, you know? So there was a sensibility about who we were as Filipino Americans in this country that I never got from anybody else. So we linked up and the rest is history, two kids later. And that's really interesting because uh, me as a rapper, uh, I don't tend to date other rappers or even get caught hollering at other rappers because I ain't, you know, it's strictly business. You know, things happen here and there. Because you don't want no diss track, huh? You don't uh, want no, <laughs> you don't want no hit em up part two. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but you should, it's fun because when you get in the studio together, like, I know my, I know my, I know my verse is busting because he got that look in his eye where he's like, oh, you want to take Jake? Okay, I'm feeling that. So it's a different kind of aphrodisiac. Like it's a, it's a good connection right that there. That does sound pretty fun. What, what, what is your, what is your advice for, because it's hard enough having a relationship where one person is a creator. Mm, mm-hmm. What is your, uh, what, what, what helps make it work with a relationship with two creatives? I mean, Work? Both independent, both, you know what I mean? You guys both have yeah. busy schedules, busy lives, different processes. I mean, first of all, 
your values have to be the same. Your value system has to be the same. So the kind of music that we make is all along the same lines of, you know, liberation for our people, liberation for all oppressed people. I can never be able to get with the rapper that was on some bitches and hoes type shit. And I say that in my Pussy Kill song. I say I would never take even a billion dollars. I would never give it up for a misogynistic rapper. And that's, that was kind of, you know, I never even wanted to date a rapper because I was interviewing them all the time. I knew what trash they were. You know, I knew what they were about. So it took a very long time for him to break those barriers down because I had to see him as more than just a rapper. I had to see him as an organizer. I had to see him as a potential um, father of my children. I had to look at him as a whole human being. So um, once you kind of strip the music away and you see somebody for who they are and you you look at the words, and you look at the behavior, you know, that that is something that's a real turn on because you're like you are about what you say. But when it comes to actually being in a real relationship and I'm saying 16 plus years, man, you need your own space. You need your own voice. You need to be able to pull them in when you want their um, their uh, two cents, but also to be like, no, like I'm doing this on my own. I'm, you know, and especially as somebody who's older than me, he's already done all these different things. He wants to make it easier for you. And I'm like, no, no, no. As I've gotten more established, I'm like, I'm going to do this album my way. I'm going to do it this way. Because as much as I love his input and I trust it because I like his music, um, as a woman, it's really, really hard for, for people to not think what my son thinks, which is, oh, you're only a rapper because your uh, man raps. Yeah. And so that was always, I was always trying to break out from that and do other things. But then I realized, I was like, you know what? If you're a creative no matter what you do, you're going to attract what you love. You're going to end up meeting a, an amazing woman rapper that can probably rap the shit out of a fucking love song for you. That would be amazing. But <laughs> I'm just saying that like there are, he wrote me so many love songs um, in his style of rap that, that for me is like, it's kind of like the old school, like getting a love letter from your great grandpa and, and reading it to your great grandma. Like, this is just our story. This is our medium. And the way to make it work is to make it about more than just hip hop. It's, it has to be about the people. It has to be about um, moving forward in the same direction and also recognizing each other's individuality so that he understands that this is how people treat me when you're not around, that he would never try to step on my toes or or try to even act like he had. Because, um, you know, he's from L.A. Yeah. So he's in the Bay now. He understands now my history. My history goes deep. But when I was in L.A., nobody knew me from a can of paint. So they're just going to assume that I'm the rapper's girlfriend. They're not introducing me. I'm over here being in rooms with more important people than some of these people have ever been in. And they over here treating me like I'm the girl, the rap, the uh, rapper's girlfriend. Yeah. And so, you know, to have a man and to have a partner that understands that and um, bigs you up when you're not around and make sure that people give you the respect that you need. I think that's what I needed. But as far as for a creative to be in a relationship, um, I know that you're going to attract what you want. And so whoever is the m more successful of the two or whoever is the one, you're going to end up switching places eventually. And if you're not okay with that, then it's not going to work. Some some years he stayed at home with the kids. Some years I stayed at home with the kids. But that's what happens when you're together for a long time is that you guys end up taking roles and switching places and not saying that this is for you and this is only for me. That's the only way we, we were able to make it work. That's deep. 
Um, I'm sure that information is going to be very helpful to some of our listeners out there. I hope so. And if you <laughs> rap and you um, are interested in Drags One, I think he's taking some application. No, let me no, not. No, no. <laughs> let me not. I don't know your situation. Closed. Applications <laughs> closed. She doesn't rap. She got her own hustle going on now. And we oh, make yeah. It work. Shout out. Shout yeah, out. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, do you want to end like that or what? <laughs> Shout out to you, homegirl. You ain't got to rap. I'm sure you good. <laughs> nah, yeah, shit. Maybe one day. But we'll see. Mm, okay. Um, you've been really active on Patreon lately, mm-hmm. um, which has kind of been a recent recent platform to emerge. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about getting into it because I see some people doing dope stuff on there. Mm-hmm. What What attracted you to that platform, and what have you been doing to make to make it work for you? Well, first of all, shout out to all my patrons. Um, a lot of them have been with me for three years strong since 2020. Um, 2020 was the year that I started because as a, a, a working musician, I can no longer get on the road during COVID. And that's my livelihood, you know, like doing shows. And I was like, what am I going to do now? How am I going to uh, support my family? You know, I have a daughter that's like two years old. I can't I can't work. I can't go to work. Um, And so I leaned on my community and the solidarity they have for me and who I am. And I said, hey, I'm going to I'm going to go on this uh, platform. And it was kind of the transition to like what they call Web3, you know, which is where it's like direct to consumer. And we all know that, you know, streaming doesn't pay us nothing. And so I was really banking on. the education of my fans to be like support is one thing, but solidarity is another thing. Solidarity means you you rocking with me for life, and and you're not just gonna take your support away from me when you feel like it. And so here's a way to put your money where your mouth is. Support me um, while I write my book. And so um, a bunch of people supported me. Um, almost 200 patrons um, contributed to me writing my first book. And till this day, they've been supporting me every month as my um, as my income um, because of the skills that I gained with Gorilla Bus Fair blog, the consistency that I have, how I can deliver, how I can deliver not just writing, but music um, and merch in one place. I think I really came into a situation where everything was centralized already for me, where I was already moving in that direction. And if you are a content creator and you know that your work is of value and that you are eternally curious and you always want to know and have these conversations, then Patreon would be a a good place for you. You just have to make sure that the people support you are in solidarity with you because once they realize that they can't get it for free, are they, do they really support you if they, if they only want it for free? Like what kind of relationship is that uh, that you have with your fans? So some people that have been with me, they don't care if I put out another book or another album. They just want to see me succeed. And that's the kind of relationship that you want to have with your fans. And if you have that with your fans, which I've been able to maintain for 10 plus years strong, then it's a good place for you. But even with that, it's it's getting harder and harder because once people have given you a certain amount of money, they're like, they want to get back to that capitalistic, like, well, what you going to give me? You're going to drop an album every every two months or are you going to do this? And then they get back to that breakneck expectation of new shit, new shit, new shit. Oh, I want an album so I can digest it in one weekend and move on to the next album. That's just kind of where we are. So you got to kind of... Um, 
cultivate uh, an audience that is with you for the long haul and not just for these instant gratification moments that most people are used to? Well, when you actually invest in your fans and you show them respect and appreciation and you make that personal connection with them over years, mm-hmm. like people I've met through, I love your music. And then like five years later, it's like we're homies. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. that type of personal grassroots connection um, lends itself to that kind of support over time. Yeah. And, you know, and if you're the first of, you know, of anybody in your family or of your community, they people want to see you succeed. And yeah. that is something that um, I would not be here if it wasn't for the support of my community in that way. Like yeah. they have kept me relevant um, in those moments where I didn't know if I wanted to continue rapping or writing. And, and all these years later, still being in the game, it really is because of that relationship that you talked about, where it's like they're not just in it for seeing you on stage, they want to see you win. And I think that's the kind of relationship we need to have with our audience. Absolutely. And that's really cool to hear that that propelled you to write your first book, Snakeskin. Mm -hmm. Dope title, dope book. I still got to check it out, but everything I've seen looks really cool. Um, Break that down, what what that book's about and and the process of creating it. So Snakeskin, for me, um, I wrote it... um, Shortly after my mom passed during the pandemic, it was, I don't really recommend writing an out, a, a book when you're grieving, but writing a book in a pandemic, it felt like I had no other choice. There was nothing else to do for me, but finally do the things that I wanted to do, which is yeah. write a book. Luckily, I had people to support me financially. That's where my Patreon came in, that they were able to give me the time and space to grieve my mom, but also to do something that I had always wanted to do. I had never had the opportunity. So I approached, I've never written a book before. I didn't even have an editor for it. I didn't even know how to lay it. I didn't know how to do any of it. But I was like, guess what? Nobody's outside. Nobody's calling you to come out. Nobody, nothing's happening. So if there isn't, if this isn't the moment for you to write your book, you're never going to write your book. So I, um, I approached it as kind of like an album. Like I have a set number of essays and in the back is the lyrics to all of my music. And it's basically an explainer of all the songs that I wrote, the controversial songs, the songs that got me in trouble, the songs that I learned from, the the interactions that I had were mad disrespectful, the ways that I was exploited by higher education. I mean, I, I like to get juicy. You know, I know that's what people read it about, but really it was about, here's my story from my perspective. Stop asking me this damn question. Here it is. Here's the record. Here's the lyrics. You read it for yourself, and you holler at me when you're done. And it was a way for me to say to my fans, this is a love letter to you, but also to my critics and say, okay, I said it. Now what you going to do? Now what you going to do? And it was a way for me to address everything that people had ever kind of aimed at me um, in a negative way and really contextualize it and be like, I need you to understand that this is harder than it looks. This is there's a whole story of how things happen and you only know a little bit of it from social media. So are you going to rise to the occasion and actually read the story? Or are you not, are you going to move on to your next target? And that's what a lot of people do. They move on to their next target. So it wasn't just for the haters, but the snakeskin metaphor for me is, you know, I have a snake now, shout out to mango. He's my, <laughs> um, he's my mascot. And, you know, you learn about nature as a woman, you're very close to nature. So you realize that a snake, you know, it sheds its skin Every every couple months and 
it stays essentially the same. It just grows. And the, and the skin that you shed, it should be a process that we all have. We all shed all these old versions of ourselves into newer versions. And it doesn't mean that we're that old person anymore. It means that that was a process to get to who we are today. And so I wanted to invite my audience to look at my growth as like snakeskin. It's like, let me look at this one version of myself that I once was. Let me appreciate it and thank you for keeping me alive and let me throw it away so I can continue to grow. And I think that what cancel culture does is it's very capitalistic. It says, oh, you did this bad thing. Let's throw the whole thing away. Let's throw all of drugs away. There's nothing else about him that's redeemable. And that's not fair because as humans, we make mistakes and we are not the worst things that we've ever done. And however can we learn about our mistakes if somebody doesn't show us with love why it was wrong? And we are so ready to jump down somebody's throat and throw the whole motherfucker out that we don't realize that that's actually serving the purposes of the greater forces that want us to be quiet. Like we're actually doing it to each other. And it's a very crabs in a barrel situation where it's like, well, let me call this fool out and and let me put this out there. And he's never, you're not realizing that people have whole livelihoods, you know, like for example, if you're trying to cancel me, then you're trying to take money out of my, and you're trying to take food out of my kid's mouth. Then I'm gonna have a problem with that. But people, because they're so, um, they feel like, hip hop artists and or women are so disposable that they could just do that and move on to the next target. I wanted to let them know like, no, 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 you're not going to do that. And you're going to, you're going to respect my humanity. You're going to read my story. You're going to see that I'm, I bleed just like you. And you're going to look at the way you approach people differently. Because if that's the last thing that I have to teach you, I'm going to teach you how to respect me in that way as an artist. And so for me, snakeskin is about growth. It's about acknowledging growth. It's about growing out of yourself into a new self. And it's about constantly evolving and saying, we are not ever going to be the final version of who we are. We're always going to continue to grow. Do you want to contribute to my growth or do you want to contribute to my to my death, basically? And so it was, you know, when I wrote that book, it was really a primer on how to treat a community artist. Like, mm. don't try to throw me away. No, yeah, you're not going to do that. Um, and a lot of the people that do the canceling are the most privileged people of all. They, they never had to make it through the struggle. So I wanted to really, it was a testament to my fans, really, because everybody on Patreon that actually um, funded the book is in the first page. And and it's really, it was a love letter to them more so than um, to my critics and my haters. Well, it sounds really personal. It sounds like it was a very therapeutic process. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that your supporters helped you make it happen. Those are obviously the people who are most invested in you and most interested in hearing these different sides of you. So it sounds like it was an amazing process. And It was. It showed me that, like, you know, that there are people out there that just purely want to support you. Yeah. And um, they believe in you. And, and that's an amazing feeling after being in the game for so long and being so <clears throat> jaded and being like, I still don't see an artist like me out there. I still don't see somebody who represents me up there. Um, it doesn't mean it's not going to happen. It just means it's going to happen when it's supposed to happen. And those little those little things that keep you going, um, that's, that's what that book represented to me. It was like, even, 
it was not just a culmination of who I was as a person in my music because it had my lyrics in it, but it was like just an example of how far community support can get you no matter what. So um, it's it's something that I hope other artists look at and say, hey, yeah, maybe you don't want to rap no more. Maybe you could write. Maybe you could write a memoir. I, I think everybody should write a memoir, actually. Yeah. I think I, I think you would look at your conflicts in your life in a different way if you were forced to put it on paper and be accountable to it. Yeah. And not only that, but you have to choose in that book or your book what you want to put on the record. And there's something that's very um, scary about that in this day and age, but also something that's really like, I don't give a fuck. I'm going to say it now. Yeah. Here you go. Oh, you're not going to read it because you don't read? Well, there you go. Can't criticize me. Yeah. You know, and it's like, it's like it's like what they said about, um, I'm not trying to say, I'm not trying to misquote it, but they were like, if you want to hide knowledge, put it in a book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, so that's why I was like, you know what? Y'all keep coming at me with these different things. I'm putting this book. So yeah. there you go. If there you don't want to read it, then that's on you. But I already got it out there and I'm already moving on to the next thing. So can you please, you know? So it was more so like um, for me to stand my ground and be like, this is... More than a rap, even more than an article. This is me. That sounds amazing. That sounds very fulfilling. And it reminds me of something I always say. Here's a little nugget from Uncle Dregs. Don't worry about who's not supporting you. Focus on the people who are supporting you. And exactly. You'll be a lot more successful and a lot happier. Exactly. And you'll actually be able to get things done instead of you know, instead of like ruminating over people hating on you. And look at this woman. Look at all the amazing things she's done that we've just covered today in just a short few minutes. I'm. Uh, what else is coming next for you? Are, are you going to keep blazing trails? Are you going to keep kicking down doors? My kicking leg is tired, man. <laughs> it's else? hard to blaze trails because the first <laughs> one sure. out the gate is the first yeah. one to get the bullets. So I'm tired of getting bullets, you know. So I think, I think, Women in hip hop, they're doing really well right now. And I'm really super proud that there are more than one, more than two, more than four women that are out right now. But for me, um, it's been a minute since I dropped an album. I dropped an album in 2018 with Women's Audio Mission called Rocky's Revenge. Oh, shout out to them. Shout out to Wham. I've, I've seen them around. Yeah, yeah, shout out to Wham. I was able to record my last album all in the South of Market, which was really amazing. I've never done that. And um, this will be my return to beat rock music. Um, I haven't done an album with them since Gangster of Love. And it's my 10-year anniversary of Gangster of Love this October, which is crazy. So, um, oh, I did I did Nom de Guerre, but that was more of an EP. Um, so this is like my first full-length album with beat rock music um, post-Snake Skin. So it's almost like I turned over that new leaf. I shed that skin. Um, and it's it's I'm excited to really flex how far I've come, not just as a person and as a writer, but as a rapper and as somebody who really loves the craft of hip hop and um, loves rapping on stage. Like, I'm just excited to do more bangers, to do more songs that make women feel good, that make men feel a little scared, but excited also. <laughs> you know, I'm down to make the kind of music that um, makes people not just like, excited to play but like make them think and make them look at the world in a different way and I think that's the kind of rap that I always want to make and I'm hopefully going to do that with my next album that's awesome looking forward to see, to hearing it and um, it's dope to uh, as we're going through this story I'm like damn I've kind of known you for a minute I've seen, seen some of these different phases and it's cool to see you still doing your thing and doing new stuff and doing really well 
And um, I really appreciate catching up with you like this. And I really appreciate your time coming through and blessing us today. Well, thank you for lending me the space. Thank you for listening to my story. Thank you for letting me talk as long as I want. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and also thank you for this podcast because, um, you know, it's not easy to always talk about the history of the Bay when we don't have a media infrastructure the way that New York and L.A. does. And um, I've always wanted more folks behind the scenes um, to push that history forward and to make it palatable and to tell it in a way that young people can understand. And I think you've done that. So congratulations oh, right to you all. I appreciate that. Yeah. Shout out to everybody. We're making history, guys. Hey. We're doing it. And this Yay. is another episode. Thank you so much, everybody. Amoeba Music. Shout Amoeba. Everybody in the building. Rocky Rivera. Yay. Peace. Recognize where you got the game. We got our own style, got our own slang. Northern California is a West Coast thing. This is the history of the bank. Recognize where you got the game. We got our own style, got our own slang. Northern California is a West Coast thing. This is the history of the bank.